I would love to see more creativity in the procurement process because I think, you know, even saying the word creativity in a conversation about procurement <laughs> seems out of place, right? But actually, creative creativity is just trying to find new and different ways to solve things. My name's Mike Lander, and you're listening to Marketing Negotiations, the good, the bad, and the ugly in partnership with The Drum, where we bring you negotiation insights from CMOs, agency leaders, and acclaimed authors. Eric, thanks ever so much for joining us on The Drum's Marketing Negotiations podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I do I do a decent amount of podcasts, and obviously we have two of our own, but I haven't done one on this topic ah. specifically, so I'm excited Excellent. to get into it with you. Ah, perfect. Brilliant. And we did some preparation work before, So, we've, but we, as we discussed, there's a few themes and a few broad questions, and then we'll have a chat, and I'm sure there'll be some rabbit warrens that we end up diving down, more than likely. But right. first of all, a bit about your background, your current role, um, and something unusual about yourself. So I am currently co-founder and CEO of Rival. We are a boutique marketing consultancy, London and New York based. We work with, our whole thing is kind of challenger brands, I guess, but it's really broader than that. It's understanding how categories are changing and then working with businesses to take advantage of that change as opposed to being taken advantage by it. So it's either true challenger brands or incumbents that are looking to put themselves out of business before somebody else does is kind of how we think about it. Yep. Um, but my background, you know, I, I spent about three years in the fintech world, CMO of a business called 11FS before co-founding Rival. And then before that, I spent 10 years in advertising agencies, the bulk of that, about seven years working at VaynerMedia, where I was an early employee way back in the day in New wow, York. Wow, what was, was that like? 15 people. It was insane. I mean, we, I know this podcast is twenty minutes. We're gonna we need like ten of There's these to get into those stories. On yeah, all together. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the short version is it's a lot of what you think it would be working right. directly for Gary Vaynerchuk for seven years. It was insane in some amazing ways and in some challenging ways, but just the growth that we experienced. I mean, I describe it as like I feel like it was getting seven MBAs, you know, doing that for seven years. And I think I was, you know, I think. All good things come from hard work and and luck, and I think I was lucky to kind of be there in the early days and help to ride that wave. But you know, I did that. Helped them open San Francisco. Moved me to London seven years ago to open their first international office here. I also spent three years at Mullen Low, uh, part of the IPG network. Actually, before it was Mullen Low, it was just Mullen when I joined. And then before that, kind of bits and bobs, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Worked in a couple startups. Worked at Forbes. Back in the day when the dot com business was separate and in like a crappy office building up the road for the magazine on Fifth Avenue. Um, and I did nonprofit before that. So, just out of interest, before we do the unusual bit, if I look kind of deep inside you at your core, your kind of DNA, what is it you'd kind of say? And I'm, I'm trying to answer this question. So, if you can figure it out <laughs> for me on this podcast, uh, I'll be eternally grateful. Um, <laughs> To, to be honest with you, I kind of fell into this. You know, I, I, gra- I went to I went to music school, oh. and and then I realized halfway through I did not want to try to be a professional musician, and you know I was drawn to kind of public sector nonprofit. I studied in South Africa for a while, worked for the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS initiative. Got a little bit frustrated with like, I feel like I'm not making a difference, 
let's go into business. They seem to be able to make a difference in things and then figure out, you know, if I want to get back to kind of nonprofit or government at some point. But I think I think the red thread uh, for me is I am fascinated by understanding, um, I guess, people, but also behavior change with people. You know, that was, that was the nonprofit piece. That was the government piece. That's certainly the marketing piece. My dad is actually a, an MD, PhD psychiatrist. So maybe, maybe it's in my blood. And if I'd been better at school, potentially I would have gone in that direction. But but I think that's it. And that's what I love about marketing. And to be honest, why I always felt a little bit like an outsider in the agency world, you know, at the the Cam Lions and things like that, because I don't love advertising for the sake of advertising. And I think there are a lot of people in the industry that do. And, and that's totally fine. My thing is, I am fascinated by how do you grow a business by changing perception and behavior through communication? Very succinctly done. Yeah. Very that, good. That's, that's marketing at the end of the day. So yeah. to me, it's like, <clears throat> I don't really care what I think or what you think about that ad or that campaign. I care, is it growing the business in the yeah. way that it should? So I think that's the red thread for me. Interesting. No, fascinating. And the unusual facts about you, apart from the fact you studied music? Um, I don't know if it's unusual, but my life is pretty simple. I've got my family. Yeah, so I've I've three daughters. Uh, I've got my work, and you know, being a co-founder, starting a business from scratch, there's a lot of work going on right now. And then the other thing is, uh, you know, I've always had some type of fitness thing. Right now, for the last few years, I've been into CrossFit, which is someone. If you go into CrossFit, you have to tell everybody that you do CrossFit. That's one of the rules. Um, but it's kind of like being vegan, you know. Um, but that I'd say that is the I guess unusual fact about me is I do competitive CrossFit. Okay. And what about the, just touch on the music for a second. Was it classical music? Was it, uh, it was rock jazz. music? Was it, what was it? Jazz. So I played music growing up, um, you know, musical household and all that. And then jazz saxophone. Oh, wow. Favorite. So John Coltrane. Exactly. Yep. So I'm a big jazz fan. So oh, really? Blue Note, uh, Blue Note Records. All I've, right. Um, yeah, I've sp- spoken to their European marketing team on a few occasions. And uh, yeah, I, a big, big, I, I have a vinyl collection. Um, which Amazing. is half of it's jazz. Yeah, I love jazz. Yeah, yeah. I was deep in that world for a while. I went to school in Montreal, so I, right. I gigged in Montreal and Toronto. Did a little bit in Boston and New York and things like that. Um, yeah, that was that was my life for you know five six years. So there's a guy that a uh, very um, well known professor at Harvard teaches negotiation, um, and he talks about the intersection between jazz and negotiation. Mm. Um, I can the, see that. Um, yeah, and I, when he when he explained it, I was like, I think his hmm. game name is Michael Wheeler, Michael Whelan. Um, and he was saying that if you look at the, you know, negotiations about preparation. So yeah, a huge, huge factor in negotiation success is preparation, doing your homework, planning it out. However, when you get into the negotiation at the table, yeah, you have to kind of freeform. Yeah. yeah, improv is really important within a structure, and yeah. that's why he likened it to jazz, which made sense to me. Yeah, makes a ton of sense, actually. I'm going to think yeah. about that next time. <laughs> so um, let's get into our kind of first kind of broad kind of topic. So I know you're focused on building kind of long-term partnerships with your clients. Um, what does that mean practically? And what are the implications when you're negotiating kind of commercial deals? And that's all around short-termism versus long-termism, uh, partnerships versus transaction, that kind of stuff. Well, I, I think the first thing is, I think, Everything you do comes from how you think about what you're doing. It's perspective before practice. And I think for most organizations, and it's tough to generalize, right? Because we're a 15-person boutique consultancy. 
and Vayner was an independent agency. And some people listening might be working at big holding company agencies where they don't they don't get to really influence how these things are done. But I think for me, I think a lot of negotiation, a lot of procurement conversations are so narrow. They're so myopic. It's how do we get this deal over the line as quickly as possible at the right price. And so I think, and and part of the benefit is like, you know, we're early stage. We've only been around for a year. So my focus, our focus is really only long-term right now of what we want to do over the next four or five years with Rival. And so I think that that's an advantage. I think, I think whenever you're in a position where you can be more long-term oriented, I think it's an advantage. And so I think going into the conversations, just with the, the philosophy of this is the first of many, even if it's only one thing. And for us as a business model, consulting is different than advertising because we're not looking for long-term retainers. All of our work is fixed fee and project-based. And so, you know, like a McKinsey or Bain or BCG, when we start a project with a client, that we view as the first thing. And it's not like we're going to be always on one project rolls into the number, into the next. But like a McKinsey, we want to be the first person that that client calls when they need help with anything that's marketing strategy related. Exactly. And so I think a big part of it for us is just the philosophy and the perspective of anytime we go into a conversation, it's the start of many over the next few years, hopefully. And I think that just puts everything in a slightly different box when it comes to the practice of the negotiation from there. And who are you typically negotiating with? So is who's your client? Who's the economic buyer, typically? Is it the marketing director? Is it the brand director? Yeah. So there's kind of kind of what I was saying before about you know category change and how do you take advantage of it. There's really two profiles for a typical client for us. One is uh, scale-ups, so Series A, Series B organizations, high growth, challengers that are disrupting an industry. Within there, it can be the CMO if they have one. You know that to the bullseye for us is CMO. That's who we work with. You know, kind of like a boutique McKinsey for CMOs. Sometimes how we talk about it. Um, but in earlier stage businesses, sometimes the economic buyer is the CEO or the COO. If you know, if it's particularly if it's B two B, CRO. If they don't have that person in place, but sometimes we say wh- whoever the growth executive is in charge of marketing on that side. On on the other side, with kind of the bigger blue chips, you know, the Reeboks, the Activisions of the world, uh, that is either the CMO or sometimes the VP of marketing. Yeah. Okay. So if you take those kind of those personas in different types of organizations, um, let, let's put the kind of professional buyer to one side for a second, the kind of the, and by that I mean the procurement person. Let's ignore yeah. that for a second. But when you're negotiating a deal, certainly one thing that I find and it's well researched, uh, lots of evidence around it. Um, if you looked at a very simple matrix of kind of relationship when you're negotiating versus substance, the thing you're negotiating around, getting the balance of getting the substance right and all the governance around it, good commercial terms, but also focusing on the relationship part to make sure that you've got long-term relationship. If you get that intersection right, the research says it's a very collaborative negotiation. If you get it wrong, you often get really good commercial deals for one side, but very bad relationships. It's very very adversarial. Yeah. So what you've talked about, about that kind of long-term partnership, how does that play out when you're balancing, there's a long-term relationship here we're developing, along with, but we need to make a profit, we're a commercial organization, how does that balance work? We prioritize the relationship. Uh, okay. You know, not, you know, nothing's black and white. No, Everything no. is shades of gray, but 
our starting point is the relationship because that's more uh-huh. long term. And so, you know, what that means, and and you know, again, it's only been a year, but we've done <clears throat> I don't know, maybe 40, 40 projects over these first 14 months. So, so a little bit to go on. I'm sure we've left money on the table. And I'm okay with that. Like, because I'm prioritizing long term. And you know, we are uh, we actually are going to be announcing this this week. We we just raised a small round of funding from some strategic angel investors, but you know, it's not meaningful. Um, and it's more actually for us, the other part of our business is we're actually building technology as well. And so the investment is actually going towards uh, building an in-house product and tech team. But because you know we have a few angel investors, not strategic or you know private equity or anything like that, we can afford to run the business how we want, which is I'm worried about top line growth. I'm focused on top line growth. I'm not focused on bottom line right now. And so that means we can leave some money on the table. We can prioritize the relationship in the long term over the next couple of years as we grow, and then potentially make that shift down the line. Um, but the very simple answer to your question is we prioritize the relationship over the substance. Brilliant. And obviously, the way you're negotiating, the substance is important, but if it comes to a sticky point about yeah. a particular aspect of scope or of impact or of payment terms or whatever it might be, and we'll come on to payment terms in a second, you'll say, we're here for the long run, you're prepared to accept a trade yep. on some of those terms, provided you're dealing with the C-suite, is what I'm hearing. Yep. So if they push you down the organization, I'd imagine it gets much tougher to do that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, no two negotiations are the same. No. Um, but, and so there's going to be to- you know, totally different factors, like what are we doing, who is the buyer, what's the brand, what's the work, the time, you know, our utilization and capacity, like all of these different factors go into it. But I think to try to simplify it for people listening, yeah, essentially that's what it is. We're willing to be more flexible Yeah, if it's In the right opportunity. A long-term longer relationship. Term, longer-term relationship. You know, when, I, I think of relationships, and I don't know if this is too transactional. And and a big thing for me, and I know we're going to talk later about like tips. The biggest one for me is is actually humanizing this process because I feel like so much of it comes down to the numbers and you know texts and email and it's, and contracts and this stuff that is very dehumanized. But at the end of the day, it's two people or you know a group of people that are all trying to do the same thing. And so I think actually adding a little bit of humanity into the process, and particularly from the seller side of things, actually having some empathy for the people who you know they're just doing their job, and so yeah, and so I think I think bringing that into the equation is actually really important. But I do think of relationships as a points game, you know, somewhere in the you know chemistry of how our brain works. You know, when you do something that people like, you get a point. When you do something that they don't, you lose a point. Of course, it's not that simple, but essentially, it is kind of like that. And so for me, I'm willing to, I'm willing to take less money or have worse terms for us to gain some points in the relationship. And I think, and there's not one way, one right way to do anything, but I think that will be best for us long term. Definitely. The humanity bit. And again, this is one of the kind of rabbit warrens that we haven't, you know, I don't like scripting anything. I think it, it ruins the conversation. Yeah, um, totally. the, the humanity bit, how yeah. does that kind of show up? So let me give you an example. So you just talked about a very good illustration, which is negotiations with um, any meaningful sum of money, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars, is going to take probably four to 12 weeks, say. During that time, what will happen, I suspect, is like any negotiation, 
there'll be some conversations and then there'll be quite a lot of emails and document markups and then there'll be maybe one or two calls and then a few more lawyers get involved and some documents. The humanity bit for me is if you find a sticking point in a document or in an email or a text, something that can be misinterpreted, picking up the phone or meeting person to person to me is a bit of the humanity totally piece. I agree. It's actually really interesting talking about this because one of the things I'm obsessed with that maybe could have been your answer to the curious thing about me is I'm obsessed with this idea of how we dimensionalize our lives uh-huh. and and take our approach and learnings in one dimension, but don't apply it to others, right? So to go back to how I was thinking about, you know, I've got my family, I've got my work, and I've got my training. And you develop systems and experiences in each of those, but then you don't port them over. You know, there's a certain, you know, especially for sports, it's so boxed up. It's so quantified in terms of making progress and not making progress. There's so many systems of how you learn those things that I think you can port over to work or to to family even and all of these different things. And so it's interesting hearing you talk about this and ask the question because my mind goes to, and I haven't thought about this before, in a sub-dimension of work, you know, I've studied, learned, um, I'm fascinated by trying to get better as a manager and as a leader. And a lot of that at the end of the day comes down to communication, right? And actually, I've never really thought about, well, how can I lift and shift some of that stuff over to procurement, right? And at the end of the day, if I un, you know, uh, uncover it, unpack it, underlying it is probably the same things, which for me is the humanity piece. I think a lot about, you know, I just call it over-communication and transparency. Your point about pick up the phone, meet with someone in person, I'm obsessed with that. But I've always thought about it with like, you know, clients or with our internal team, which is, Email is the worst form of communication because there is no context to it. There's no humanity to it. And yet, especially when it comes to procurement, 100%, 99% goes through that unless it's a bigger deal or you know, you've got your client involved or whatever it is. So I think the best way to communicate with someone is in person. The second best is like this when we're on Zoom and we can actually see each other. After that, it's a phone call. And then after that, you know, it's probably a text message actually. And then after that, it's an email. So I think that that is a really good point that I would agree with, which is work your way down the communication channel hierarchy from points of how can you bring as much humanity and context into the conversation. And then maybe you do eventually get to email for 80% of it. But I think that makes a big difference, particularly when probably other vendors are not thinking that way or acting that way. Exactly. And I think all of us, and I suffer from it as well, um, we we often don't like confrontation. So the easiest way to hide behind confrontation is in an email. So I can send something to you that I wouldn't say if you were probably sat opposite me in a coffee bar. I'll say it in a way which is more aggressive. Whereas if we humanize that, my intent is probably actually quite good. But the way I'm conveying it is poor. And without that verbal um, context, without that, kind of messaging and tone of voice, it's so easy to misinterpret and to start to go off track in terms of how the negotiation develops. Totally agree. So interestingly, I don't know if you've read this. Uh, so uh, do you uh, do you listen to the two Bobs? No, don't ah. do the podcast. So yeah, David Baker and Blair Ends. Uh, so no, David Baker's no, no. released a new book, uh, which is called The Secret Tradecraft of Elite Advisors. Uh, so like the title or not, it's a good book. It's a good read. 
But one thing he says in there is he talks about this point about read across. He said, you know, in our lives, we have all these experiences with our families or with the where, where we live and what we do and the environments we live in. But we often don't read those across into our business lives. And if you read those across, yep. you pick up all sorts of interesting ideas and thoughts. So we, the, the more we compartmentalize our lives, yep. the poorer we are as human beings. Totally agree with that. And I really like that term, reading across. Potentially going to steal that. Uh, what's the name of the book again? So it's called um, Secret Tradecraft of Elite Advisors. Okay, cool. Check Good that book. Out. Probably take you three or four hours to read. So moving on to another topic I know that you're passionate about uh, and slightly concerned about. <laughs> um, you despise, rightly, um, clients imposing excessive payment terms on niche kind of like challenger agencies. Do you want to just talk about your experiences uh, of that and what you've done about it? Sure. Uh, so my experience with it, which I'm sure anybody working in agencies or consulting firms can relate to, is for the most part, you kind of take what you're given. You know, even if you're a big holding group agency, you know, maybe you have a little bit more leverage. But for the most part, you know, these big brands they kind of dictate the terms, and so you know, some of them are more understanding and willing to have what I would say acceptable payment terms than others. And so some big organizations are still on 30 or 45. But a lot of them have moved to 90, some even 120. And I think what sparked the topic when we were doing our prep call was the article um, that we covered in one of our podcasts about, I think it was Dr. Pepper Keurig over in the US for a PR pitch. 360 days. 60, yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure there's a story there. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure there is. Like that doesn't seem like something that just kind of happens. But I think the biggest thing for me is they kind of can do what they want, you know, and people for the most part are still going to do it. Now, maybe 360, maybe people aren't going to do that and maybe they won't get the best agencies. But for the most part, within the 30, 60, 90 day window, a lot of them are just going to be able to do it. And um, I don't think that's right. Not that that really matters, you know, because it's what you can do. But I've always been fascinated that there hasn't been more collective bargaining, you know, approach between agencies. Because particularly, and, you know, working at a Vayner, working at a Mullen Low, that's very different. That, you know, if you're the MD of an office or head of a practice or whatever it is, you know, you're mostly worried about profit and loss not cash flow and income statements. If you're us, a <laughs> you're year really in, worried about it's cash. Flow. It is <laughs> cash here. much more than profitability. And so it's 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 kind of insane to me to be honest because if you think about it at the end of the day, we as a small business, a very small business in the UK and the US are banking some of the biggest companies in the world. And it, you know what? It is what it is. I can say I'm frustrated by it. I don't think it's right. At the end of the day, I sign those contracts and we take those terms. So so that's what it is. Now, what I do about it, which I'm sure is what everybody does about it, is you try to negotiate it down. And typically, you know, a bunch of different levers. If you want to go down here, then maybe you have to go up somewhere else and all that stuff. And you kind of take each as they come. But those payment terms, it's one of, you know, I know one of your questions is how would you rethink things if we were going to do it, if we were going to reinvent all this stuff right now? And that's one of the things that I would really hope could change is to not have small businesses bankrolling big businesses through. Uh, unfair procurement terms. Definitely. So and around that, I was talking to a, a big brown CMO um, last week, just not on the podcast, but just having a chat with him. Um, and I was saying, look, you know, in, in some 
companies I've worked for, because I've been on the buy side and the sell side, um, they're starting to think about, well, maybe there should be a, a preferred suppliers list and set of commercial terms for SMEs. Now, you have to qualify to be an SME, so there are certain yeah. criteria you'd have to yeah. get through. But if you got through those criteria on a factual, rational basis, there are terms that would apply to you as an SME that wouldn't apply to other bigger agencies. Yeah. And he said, although he said we haven't done that, he said those discussions are, are being had because we want the innovation, we want the creativity, we want the flexibility of uh, niche agencies, but we can't expect to get all that and have payment terms on 120 days Yeah, because it will bust them. Cash flow-wise, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. Yep, I, I totally agree. Um, and I, I actually think, I think there's a big opportunity because you talk to a lot of clients and you know maybe they're saying this because we are boutique, but a lot of them say, hey, we want the boutique for all those reasons that you mentioned or for certain, for certain type of work, right? Um, I think there's an opportunity for brands to stand out in a really positive way if they come out and make a statement of, hey, we're going to these payment terms or we've set up these tiers for SMEs. Because at the end of the day, if your brand side, you want the best agencies wanting to work with you. And so there's an opportunity to differentiate within this, I think. Definitely. Narrow and deep. Again, as the kind of Blair Ends and um, David Baker, you know, uh, bang on about a lot rightly, is you need to be niche. And by niche, you need to be narrow, but very, very deep in your expertise. Broad context, but very deep in your expertise area. And again, as a buyer, I can reflect that, is that, <clears throat> yes, sometimes I'd buy a global network agency. Why? Because I'm de-risking and I'm spending X million on advertising and sure, I'm going to use a yeah. big agency. But whenever I'm buying and solving a particular problem, I'd normally go down the niche route of I want to find someone who's got a very deep expertise in a certain area. Um, sometimes it could be a one-person business. More likely, it's that 10 to 20, 30-person agency that's a deep specialist. And therefore, to do that, I should have better terms for niche suppliers. Yep. So let's kind of draw this together. So I'm conscious of your time. I don't want to abuse your time, the opposite. If you think about kind of like just like the top two or three big tips that you would give to an agency, but also to a buyer. That question around how would you transform the buying process, what are your kind of two or three big things that you'd say would improve the negotiations and the way that agencies are contracted? Well, the big one, which I don't think is going to change anytime soon, is that I really think the pitch process needs to get rethought. Like, it just, I feel like it doesn't work for any, it's one of those things where it's like, it's just accepted, and I really don't think it works for anybody. It doesn't work on the agency side because... You have to spend so much time and money of your best people, usually, in these processes. And particularly as a small business, you, you add up you know, the costs, particularly when there's travel involved, and then the soft costs of the people's time going into these things. And it's, and, and it's actually why as Rival, we say we don't pitch. Every agency says they don't pitch, but we have only done two pitches. One was for a very big you know, blue chip company where we were like, even if we lose, we win because we get a chance to show them what we can do. And the other one, um, and this is my other thing about it, I obviously won't say who it is, but so many of these, and this is why it also doesn't make sense for agencies, so many of these are pretty much decided before they go on. 
they are finance-driven things where it's like, hey, if it's over that amount, then you actually got to do this pitch process. But the client's like, but I know who I want to work with. They're like, sorry, you got to talk to four other people. If you are not the one that is, you know that this is just a process, somebody else is. And so that's the other thing that I think is kind of broken. I totally get and empathize why they need to go through that process, but it's kind of, um, it's broken, to be honest. And then on the client side, you know, I, I relate it to uh, interviews. If you look at all the research out there, you know, what's the correlation between unstructured interviews and how successful somebody's going to be in their job? It is very, very low. I forget exactly what it is. It's like 20% or something insane. That's like what a pitch process is. Let's come up with something that's not really what we're going to ask you to do. And we're going to have the people that aren't actually going to work on my business come in and in a like very structured, controlled way, try to wow us with what they can come up with. Ludicrous. It's not the best way to do it. So, you know, my proposal and what we've done in a couple instances is first of all, pay agencies for their pitches. I think that that should, I think that that should be happening. I think agencies should be asking for that. And second of all, much like what we do for interviews, and I would recommend other people do for interviews, you have the unstructured interviews, but there is always some type of task or assignment at the end. And we pay people for that. you know. So it's not a lot, but it's something. And they have to come in and do something that is related to the job that they're going to do. So if it's a sales role, they have to pitch us on something. If it's a leadership role, they have to lay out their plans of how they want to build a function, whatever it actually is. I think there needs to be some type of like two-week engagement that's actually like working with the agency. Yeah. And that gets you closer to, is this the right partner for me on both sides, actually? So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox about that, but I really hate the pitching process. <laughs> and we're trying to box. avoid it as much as possible um, here at Rival. Um, I think the biggest tip, so certainly the humanity one that I mentioned before, just going into it with a little bit more empathy, a little bit more understanding, a little bit more humanity in the process of trying to understand the, the person behind it, what they want to accomplish, what they want to do, and vice versa. Um, I think taking that long-term approach to the extent that you're able, whenever you're able to be the person that's more, or the organization that's more long-term oriented, I think you have an advantage. The other one that we haven't talked too much about, I would love to see more creativity in the procurement process, because I think you know, even saying the word creativity in a conversation about procurement <laughs> seems out of place, right? <laughs> But actually, creative creativity is just trying to find new and different ways to solve things. And so, you know, what that actually means, of course, depends on the situation. But I think when it comes to, you know, payment terms, when it comes to how you actually structure a deal, is there a variable component? We always try to introduce or find some type of variable component, variable component in our deals. Most of the time, that's tricky to do. But I think trying to get creative with the approach, whatever that means to you in the situation that you're in. I just asked that idea of how could I get creative and potentially do this differently as opposed to just following the process as it's laid out. Exactly. And in the the, the theory of negotiation, they call them integrative uh, negotiations, where basically we're trying to make the pie bigger for each other by solving yeah. more complex problems for each other yep. and with each other. So we collaborate to solve a problem in a way that works for both of us. Yeah. And the other thing I'd throw out there, if it's helpful, you know, so we kind of sit at this intersection, I guess, between challenger brands and incumbents that want to think and act like challengers. And so we have this perspective in the work we do and the content and the research that we put out and things like that of, you know, what is it that makes these challengers different? And of course, there's so many different things, not just when they're marketing, but, you know, so much. And a lot of it's been well documented. But for me, if I boil it all down, 
they are, in what they do, marketing and also other things, they're fit for purpose for the world of today because they know nothing else. You know, they've been born into this world. And actually, the most successful incumbents are the ones that are able to think and act like challengers because they're constantly reinventing themselves to be fit for purpose for the world of today. So the prompt that I sometimes give out is like, kind of like we were saying of how would you do this differently? If you knew nothing about how this was done in the past, what would you do differently? And you can't always get there, not right away, but I think that... um you know, it was day one thinking is kind of Jeff Bezos and how he brought it into Amazon. If you bring that day one thinking into the process, it can actually surprise you and give you some really exciting, differentiated ways to approach things. And Eric, if we talk about that, just to kind of close off on that point, the read across, I was at KPMG, so expert consulting, uh, transformational consulting. When we, when we came to solve clients' problems in certain sectors, we'd bring out-of-sector experience to yep. that client. Yep. So we'd bring someone from the music industry yep. to look at the manufacturing industry, which sounds crackers, but it's because they've solved problems in very different ways. Yeah. One, one of the books that I um, reread recently is Range. Not read I, that. I forget, I forget the author, so you should definitely check it out. Um, but, but basically, it's a, I think the subtitle is something like how generalists thrive in a world of specialists, or something like that. And it's basically all about why it's important to kind of be a generalist, you know, um, Matt, you know, what is the expression, jack of all trades, master of none type of thing. And it looks at how actually many of the 10x breakthroughs in industries come from people who came in from other industries with a fresh perspective. And we're like, wait, what if you just line these two things up? And somebody else is like, well, we never thought about it that way. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can't be done. It's not supposed to be done. But that type of fresh perspective um, is really important. So you should check out that book. I think you'd like I'll it. I'll have a look, definitely. Eric, it's been amazing. Thank you. Really interesting. Really enjoyed it. Really, really good. Some great insights. Thank you ever so much for sharing your time with us. Um, where can people find out more about you? Uh, so website for the company is wearerival.com and then I'm on LinkedIn or you can email me at eric at wearerival.com. Eric, brilliant. Thank you ever so much indeed. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.